The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. We're looking at Mark 14, and as we discussed before, this is the Passion Week of our week of his life it's the week of suffering and every passage is going to kind of take us into some of the anguish and the struggle of we see the greatness and the depth of Jesus's love but we also see how much we're in need of his grace because all the characters here in this story I mean he's going to tell them all of you are going to fall away uh, they're all going to uh, abandon Jesus we see that in, in Mark 14, verse 50, it says they all left him and fled. So it's, it's, this is not going to be a, uh, this wonderful thing where, where all the disciples are going to be faithful, even though Peter it keeps promising that he's going to be faithful. Even though he sized up everybody else, they're all going to fall away, but not him. He's ready to go and even die with the Lord. And what we're going to see is that Peter is sincere, he's secure, but he's also stupid because he's got the wrong footing and he's trusting in himself and he has a, a wrong evaluation of himself. The Lord's assessment is always right. And so let's give attention here. I'm gonna, there's three trulies in this text, so look for them as I read it. But when someone says to you, truly I say to you, if someone just says, truly I say to you, what, what two things kind of come to your mind when someone says that? This is really important, and my first thought is I'm, this can't be true, because they're telling me truly it is true, so I'm thinking this can't be true. Well, Jesus says three times, truly I say to you. So those are, are the three points of the message will be to hit on those trulys, but let's give attention. Mark 14, 12 to 31, this is God's word. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the master of the, of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room? Where, may, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepare for us. And the disciples set out, went to the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful, and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, it's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to them, and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, 
I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. They pray for us. Father, as we consider now this, this sacred word, we pray that, Lord, you would speak your words of grace into our hearts and lives as we would come, just as the disciples did, and table fellowship with you. We pray that we would see your great love for us in laying down your life's blood and laying down your life for us. We pray also, Lord, that we would um, take heed lest we think that we're standing firm and that we fall. And so we pray that we would learn the lessons that you would have for us from your word. And we pray that we would grow together as the people of God more and more like you. We ask in your name. Amen. So the first truly, did you catch it? Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. You know, when you think of the Last Supper, the Last Supper begins with introspection and self-examination. They all begin to ask, is it I? And there's a lot of sorrow because somebody is going to commit this treachery Somebody is going to betray him. And Jesus says it's one of the 12. So we know that this, this Last Supper, actually, there was more people than 12 in the room. There had to be because he's like, yeah, it's one of the 12, one of, the, one of you right here that are eating right here with me. And what we see from this mysterious passage is because, you know, Jesus has this statement here where he says, um, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Verse 21, it would have been better for him, for that man, if he'd never been born. You have this mystery of God's sovereignty. There's a very fulfillment of prophecy. God knows all things. He's never surprised. Never. And he's fulfilling, Judas is actually fulfilling a few prophecies of Scripture, two in particular from the Psalms. In Psalm, one, in Psalm 41, 9, we are told where the psalmist says, Even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And then again in Psalm 55, For it's not an enemy who taunts me that I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me that I could hide from him. But it is a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Jesus is saying that he's going to experience this treachery and pain of betrayal as one of his disciples will turn him in for 30 pieces of silver. He's going to hand Jesus over to his enemies. Now, God knows it will happen. Jesus knows that this has been decreed. But woe to him to whom, who does this. And the idea is that God's sovereignty 
does not negate man's responsibility. And Judas is culpable, and he's responsible. And we know innately, as Augustine says, that Judas is to be punished for his sin. Judas's sin is different than Peter's denial, which we'll get to. There's no turning back in Judas's sin. It is a willful and rotten turning to the darkness. And though Judas has regret later, we'll see of what he's done, that he's going to actually take his life. His regret is his 2 Corinthians 7.10. It kind of, and I encourage your reflection on this verse, 2 Corinthians 7.10, where it says, Worldly grief produces death, whereas a godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. And we see that Peter, is, he's going to grieve as well, but his, his is going to lead to a repentance that leads to salvation, whereas Judas's worldly grief produces death, but doesn't produce any change in his heart. Very sobering text. And so, in John's account, even, I mean, it's very scary because it says that when he ate of the bread, it dipped it, it says Satan entered into him. I mean, John's account is really dreadful. And then it says, and he went out, and it was night. And you get this ominous sense of evil has entered and left the room. And, but here, as we're seeing in Mark 14, as one commentator put it like this, he said, when you think about the Lord's, the Last Supper, it's a table of, not of merit, but of grace, I mean, you hear, here you have Jesus saying, they all swear allegiance to Jesus in verse 31, but he tells them they're all going to fall away in verse 21, and by verse 50, they've all fled. So the original Last Supper is attended by traitors, verse 18, and we even see cowards of Peter, verse 50. We see we need his grace. So the first truly is, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And so just because you're in the church, you come to church, you sit with God's people. You profess to be among them. I mean, the last person they would have picked. I mean, they, they picked Judas to be over the money bag because he was so trustworthy, most certainly. And yet he was a devil. So beware. This is sobering. The second truly is Jesus says in verse 25, Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I have to say, I don't really think I've ever understood this verse before. And Tim Keller helped me to see something here, that really this is not just a, a promise or a prophecy, which it is, but it's actually much more of an oath. This is a vow. And if you compare it with Acts 23, it begins to make sense. Acts 23 is this, if you recall, there's a story of, there's this group of evil men that get together, Jews, that they want to kill the Apostle Paul. And we're told in Acts 23, it said, when it was day, the Jews made a plot. They bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There was more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. And Keller just says, reflecting on this, when you say, I take a vow not to eat or drink until I get a goal accomplished, that's putting the highest possible priority on that goal. What you're saying is, I won't even eat before I have done this. There's nothing 
more important. I won't even stop to eat. Now do you get what Jesus is saying? You see, Jesus is saying, you are the utter priority of my life. I will not eat or drink until I have laid down my life for you. This is it. I eat now, but I will not eat or drink again until I lay down my life. And then I'm going to drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. And so there's a, there's a whisper. Matter of fact, you could say it's a shout of the resurrection. How can he say he's going to lay his life down, but then he's going to say, but I'm going to eat it new with you in the kingdom of God. We just get, we hear this so often, but it, it's a whisper. It, and it's definitely pointing to the resurrection. And certainly he's going to say next that he's going to say, you know, you all are all going to fall away. You know, strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. But he says, but after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Well, if you just got struck down, how are you going to go to Galilee? It's screaming what? Resurrection. That he's going to be struck down as, the, as the, the lamb, but he'll be raised as the lion. And he will go before them to Galilee. It is all being fulfilled. And you see, what you have to keep in mind here is the context. And we just read Exodus 12. And we're told four times in the first four verses here, verses 12 to 16, you just keep coming across the word Passover, 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 on the eve of Passover. You know, it's the first day of unleavened bread. Mark is trying to get us to see the context very clearly because here's what would have happened at the Passover. Now, I've got a little help here from, not, I'm not this smart. This is a commentator. He says, on the eve of Passover, which would have been 14 Nisan, I think that's how you say the, the word in, in Hebrew. Uh, basically, work would, would normally cease at noon, and the ritual slaughter of the Passover lambs began at 3 p.m. as the heads of the household brought their animals to the temple. The priests would sprinkle the blood against the base of the altar and offered the fat on the altar. The animals were dressed with the legs unbroken and the head still attached to the carcass, and they were returned to the worshipers, and because of the great number of people, the slaughter had to be separated from the place of eating. The only stipulation was that the lambs had to be eaten in Jerusalem, whose borders were expanded to accommodate the crowds. The worshipers would then return to their homes or wherever they could find a nook or a cranny to spit the lamb on a stick for the late evening meal. This took place in the evening on 15 Nisan, strictly speaking, the first day of unleavened bread. So here's Jesus now eating the Passover with his disciples at this very time frame. They have killed the lamb, and now the lamb has been, you know, now that he's celebrating Passover with the disciples and the head of the family would would take the bread and we're going to do this uh, on Good Friday this year we're going to have a Seder meal right here in the sanctuary invite your friends we've got uh, somebody coming from chosen people ministries and they're going to walk us through this whole Christ in the Passover so that's just a little set that aside on your calendar but we're going to eat together and we'll experience and and We'll hear this in more detail, but what would happen during that Passover meal is the head of the family would take bread eaten at every meal, they'd lift it up, and they would say a prayer. And the prayer was, praise be thou, or blessed be thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who causes bread to come forth from the earth. And after the amen response, the bread would be broken and distributed, 
and there will be blessings uh, to each one who ate. And then the same was true over the wine, and there'd be a similar prayer. Jesus gives the traditional blessing of the bread, but he adds something totally different. Jesus says, this is my body. And after the blessing of the cup, he gives it to them. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant. That's nowhere in the, in the, in the ceremony that they were to do that. But it is everything to do with all of the hints and the points and the shadows and the pictures and the types of the Old Testament. But as one commentator put it, years of taking communion have so conditioned us that we hardly blink an eye over this statement. Think of what it might have, been, have felt like for a Jew in the first century or to be one of the 12 sitting right there and Jesus the host says, this is my blood. This is what all the Bible has been pointing to. All the way back at Genesis 15, when Abram wants to know, Abraham, how do I know that, that through my offspring all the families of the earth are gonna be blessed? I don't even have a child. And God says, bring the pieces. Bring the pieces and we'll cut a covenant. We will cut a covenant. And they knew what that meant in that culture. When you cut a covenant, you'd cut the animals and you'd have the two rows and you would walk between the covenant and sometimes the vassal and the Lord would both walk through, but it was usually just the vassal, but never just the Lord. And that's what happened in Genesis 15 is that God says, I, I am the malediction. I will take the curse. I will prove to you. You cut the animals, so be it to me. I will walk between those pieces. I will fulfill my promise. He will fulfill the covenant. And Jesus will soon be right between two bloody thieves, shedding his blood, cutting a new covenant in my blood. And the new covenant is what? I will remember your sins no more. I will pass over you. Because just as the blood would be on the, on the door and on the sides, Jesus' hands and on his head is where the blood is being shed so that he would pass over you. And the firstborn were struck down in Egypt and they would have been struck down in Israel. But to think that God's firstborn, the only son of God, that he would step in our place that he would be the substitution, he would be the sacrifice, he, the lover of our souls, is going on a mission, and his mission is, I must cut this covenant, I must walk between the pieces, he will fulfill it, he will be the lamb caught in the thicket of Genesis 22, he is that picture, he is the one that is sacrificed like the day of atonement in Leviticus 16, and they would put their head on the animal, and the high priest would slit its throat and, and it was symbolic that my life for his and the, the animal's blood is shed, but the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. But without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so we see that substitution has to happen. And we have this central prophecy in Isaiah 53 of substitution that tells us that he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. I mean, that is just total substitution language in Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament. And here it is being fulfilled as Jesus is telling them and handing them the cup, saying, this is my blood of the covenant. Just as you've seen that lamb, he's he's not saying, you know, this is literally his blood. He's still beating heart as he says it. He still has a body as he says, this is my body. They knew it was symbolic. So we don't think that the elements themselves become the body and blood of Jesus. We understand that if I pulled a map down and said, this is France, that I'm pointing to something that's a symbol. That's not literally France, right? You got to get on a plane to actually go to France. The disciples knew who Jesus' body was and what the symbol was. But the symbol was my life for you. I'm the lamb, all the fulfillment. And then you have to ask yourself, but why? Are we really sinners in need of grace? I mean, I th- isn't it God's job to like, isn't his job to forgive? My job is to, is to do the best I can, but when I mess up, it's just God's job to forgive. I think a lot of people think that way innately like, But the reality is, as the early church father Augustine described sin, he described it in this Latin phrase, homo incurvitus inse, which means sin is the human being curved, the human being being curved in on himself. We are curved in creatures on ourselves, meaning at the end of the day, we are selfish. Instead of being turned outward toward God and towards loving our neighbor, sin is just the opposite. We are turned inward. And instead of loving God, we love ourselves. Instead of loving our neighbor, we love ourselves. And as we begin to turn this, this curvature of inwardness, we make a mess of things. We hurt others. We sin against others. And when others sin against us, we have this big problem. It's called forgiveness. Tim Keller recalls once, he's, a, he's if you wonder who Tim Keller is, he's a, with the Lord now, but he was a pastor in New York City. And he had a dialogue once with a psychiatrist. And, he's, and the psychiatrist said to him offhandedly that if he could teach one-third of his patients how to forgive and let go of their anger, almost all of the problems he was treating them for would go away. A third. That's a psychiatrist, not a psychologist, Psychiatrist, okay, they're the ones that put you on the meds because you need help. And he's saying a third of the problem, if they could forgive and let go of their anger, would, would go away. But why can't they? Well, one, re- one big reason why, as one writer put it, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Just listen to that again. Why do we have a hard time forgiving people? Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans. He's not even a human. Even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. We forget who we are and we forget who they are. And we separate this big distance that they are really so different than us. When in reality, they're just like us. 
And Jesus is looking right at these disciples. And, and you see this going back and forth between Jesus and Peter. Jesus promises and prophesies in verse 27 and 28, you will all fall away. Jesus says that, and, but Peter makes a promise in return. Even though all fall away, I will not. Jesus ratchets up and makes another promise and prophecy. I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Peter ratchets up again. No, no, Jesus, you're, you think you're smart, but I am so much smarter than you. I know better. I will dig in even harder. I'm ready to die with you. I will not deny you. He doesn't get who he is, that we are weak. Peter sees himself as strong. Peter sees himself as confident. Peter sees himself as better than he sized up all the disciples and he measures himself better than all of them. And Jesus measures him up accurately and tells him truthfully, you'll all fall away. And this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. Well, if you're wondering how all this leads to why does God have to forgive sins, the answer is this. Why can't God just move on? Why can't God just wink on it and say, no big deal, I just let it go? Well, let me try to give you an answer to that because I think in some of our hearts we, we wrestle with this. Why, why does this satisfaction for sin have to be so bloody, so gory, so much suffering. Why? I think Jonathan Edwards in his sermon on the satisfaction for sin has some arguments that are helpful. And he gives three, he gives several arguments, but I'm going to give you three. And they're, they're pretty straightforward. The one argument is to protect God's justice. The other is to protect God's holiness. The other is to protect God's glory. Argument number one. God's justice is his commitment to love and to uphold the orderly connections which he has established in this universe. And there's a connection between sin and punishment such that sin deserves punishment. If God did not judge sin, he would be contradicting this connection and violating his justice. He would be violating who he is. If God did not judge sin, he would not be maintaining order in his kingdom. If God is to remain just, he must punish sin. That's argument number one. Argument number two, God is holy. Sin, by very definition, is unholy. And therefore, God is the utter contradiction of sin. This means that God is opposed to sin since it contradicts his very nature. If God is opposed to sin by nature, he must express his opposition in the world for otherwise creation would not answer to the reality of the greatness of God's holiness and his nature. Therefore, if God did not punish sin, he would be contradicting his holiness and thereby denying himself of who he is. Argument number three, God's glory is of infinite worth and value. God must maintain this value and honor of his glory in order to be righteous. Sin is an attack on God's glory. It dishonors God's infinite worth. Therefore, if sin is treated as inconsequential, God's glory is treated as inconsequential. 
Thus God must punish sin in order to uphold his honor. For if he did not, he would be denying his infinite worth and thus be committing unrighteousness. And that's hard for us to, to reckon with this fact because, but we do see that whenever anybody comes into the presence of God, what happens to them? They are scared to death. They fall on their face because they realize they're undone. They're in the presence of pure holiness of which we are not. And we can't even fathom God's greatness. But we know that just on an earthly plane, that certain deeds that are done are worse than other deeds. And, and the degree of proportion is depending on who you have hurt in this process. You know, if you, if you all of a sudden see 15 police cars driving 90, 100 miles an hour, what are you thinking in your head when you see that many police cars or even more? Somebody has shot a police officer. Like, all the bees are out. You have done committed something much worse than shooting a person. You've actually shot a police officer, and now they're all coming with full full tilt towards you and that's just terrible but imagine if it's the president of the united states then even more force everything's going to be sent at you because of the proportion of the degree of the significance of the person at the top of the uh, chain of authority we have all sinned against god and belittled him and disregarded him and God is so much greater than a policeman or the president of the United States. And his law has been violated. And so we deserve the full weight and measure of the law to come down on us. But Jesus, out of his love that he would be just and the justifier, pushes us out of the way. And he will go to the cross for us. He will carry that cross. He will stumble, but he will make it and he will be crucified upon a cross, shedding his blood, taking the very curse that we deserve so that the blessing would then fall upon us instead of the curse for those who by faith receive that. That's what the, the whole Bible has been pointing to this. And Jesus is now fulfilling it in time, space, and history with the disciples at the Last Supper, having table fellowship with these disciples that he loves and what i want you to see more than anything in this text is that the the i wills the the the, the you wills are not thwarted by the i wills because there's some you wills and then there's some i wills the you wills is jesus says you will all fall away you will deny me three times but god says I'll strike the shepherd. And it's a prophecy from Zechariah 13 that God says, awake, O sword, and strike the shepherd. The shepherd is Jesus. Who struck him? It pleased God to bruise the son. Isaiah 53, 10. God would bruise his son because out of love for us so that he would be just in the justifier, he punishes his son. And so they'll all fall away. You will do this, you will do that, you will sin. And yet... Your sin, God's grace, is greater than our sin. 
And so even for Peter, who was humbled by this, because he thinks, though everybody else will fall away. I mean, you, you just think about Peter for a minute and what he's really thinking. Because what you have with this is that, you know, Peter thinks he's better than everybody else. And even though they all fall, he will not. Jesus keeps reaffirming this prophecy, but th Peter thinks he knows better than Jesus. Peter sees all the disciples as weaker and more vulnerable than him. Jesus sees the opposite. He sees Peter as he is. Peter sees himself as brave and strong. Jesus sees Peter as cowardly and weak in and of himself. Jesus is committed to death, and Peter thinks he's also committed to death. But we see Jesus' commitment is for real. And Peter's is not. Peter is overconfident of himself, and Jesus' assessment is always the correct assessment. But what we see is that the I wills, that I will drink this cup. I will lay down my life. I will go before you to Galilee. He is going to fulfill these very things because his love for us is greater than our sin of him. And we see that they all fall short here. Nobody here says, boy, they, they really came through this with flying colors. They're a lot like us. We would have all fallen short if we were there as well. But we see that his grace is sufficient. And Jesus goes to a cross, and then he completes his assignment, and he says, it is finished. And he breathed his last, and he gave up his spirit. And we see the temple veil is torn in two from top to bottom, that atonement has been made and now access and freedom and boldness to come into the presence of God because God is fully just in punishing this lamb of his only unblemished, perfect son who never sinned and offered his life for us so that we could come and have fellowship and communion with him, not just now, but forever. He's saying he's gonna drink it new with us. I mean, just think about that. I'm gonna drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. It's gonna happen. And so, as we get, prepare to come to the table, let us be mindful that we don't have feet that are quick to fall, that are trusting in ourselves, but that we're clinging to Jesus, recognizing his grace is sufficient for us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we wanna thank you and praise you that we are made complete in you. It is because of you that we're in Christ Jesus. You're everything to us. You're our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. Any boasting that we have, we just repent of. All our boasting is in you because you have done everything for us. Thank you for accomplishing salvation, propitiation, satisfaction for sin. And we thank you that though our consciences accuse us, and there's times where our conscience condemns us, that you're greater than our hearts, and we thank you that you have forgiven us. We pray that our trust would be in you and not in ourselves. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.